Today I sit down with Patia Moore and I dig into the art of political fundraising. We touch on a number of issues around how donors need to be courted, political action committees, the Citizens United versus FVC case, and more. We also discuss her feelings about OpenSecrets.org and how donations are being weaponized. With that, please meet Patia Moore. Hello and welcome to the Arsnake Show. Today I with me, Patia Moore. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Um, we are going to be talking about a number of things, but probably mostly around fundraising and uh, lobbying. Okay. Because I hear you know a lot of things about that. Apparently. <laughs> so why don't you walk me through a little bit about kind of how you got started with fundraising? Like, what? how'd you get to decide to do this, of all things? Like, Well, you know, it's kind of funny. So I grew up in Arkansas, um, born and raised, went to college at the University of Central Arkansas, graduated from college there in spring of 2003. Yes, you now know my age. Um, and like I grew up in a very political family. Um, I mean, they were Democrats, but old school Democrats, totally different than the Democrats of today's age, of course. But we always, we were a small family, small ex- extended family, but we always, from as long as I can remember, we talked current events and politics at the dinner table. You know, my dad was a local elected official. My aunt was a local elected official. So like politics wouldn't necessarily say it was in my DNA, but like public service was things my grandmother did, what have you. So I go to college, get a degree in speech comm, was going to go to law school, decided I needed a gap year and that mom and dad needed to just let me have a gap year. And they're like, that is great. If you want to do that, that's fine. But you have to figure it out on your own of like who's paying your rent and what mm. have you. So it was 2003, the uh, Bush Cheney reelection campaign had just launched and I, you know, wanted to figure out what I was going to do with my time, what type of a job. I just graduated from college. So I go to this, you know, volunteer recruitment meeting and I ended up meeting my future first boss. Mm. Um, <clears throat> total, was, what? Uh, totally thought that I was like, okay, creepy. Are you hitting on me? Like whatever. He wasn't. Um, he totally wasn't. But I went to coffee with him the next week. He got my phone number from the sign-in sheet or whatever. Again, I thought, super creepy. creepy. Yeah, it's a little creepy. Um, <laughs> and so I, I meet him for coffee, and um, we're about 10 minutes into the conversation. And he's just like, great. He's like, well, I want to offer you this job to do fundraising for, you know, the Bush-Cheney re-election efforts. And I looked at him, and I was like, <clears throat> we've been here for 10 minutes. Like, you don't know anything about me. Uh, and he's just like, oh, you're young, you're blonde, you're pretty. You'll be perfect. And I looked at him, I was like, well, I'm really smart too. So lucky you, like whatever. <laughs> and I, I never looked back. I never went to law school. And I, you know, I just uh, really loved what I was doing. I, I felt like, you know, the fundraising part of it is the lifeblood of so many of the campaigns because yeah, there's every component is necessary to a campaign, but so many of those components you need, you can't have unless you have funds in the bank. And Um, Anyway, I just enjoyed it and apparently um, had an aptitude for fundraising and ended up getting to go after the campaign was over because at that point, it was the last time that Arkansas was a swing state in a presidential cycle. And so after that was over with, I was offered a position um, on the inaugural committee raising money um, for President Bush and Vice President Cheney. And then I went into the administration after that. Wow. Yeah. And so did you also do fundraising like for local things here in Austin, like South by or anything like that? Or was it entirely campaigns? And no, it's not been entirely campaigns. I mean, you know, um, it's been a lot of political work, Mm -hmm. mainly all of the work I've done has been very political, like probably 90% of the work I've done has been political adjacent or straight up political, whether it's, 
a policy organization that's geared toward a specific set of policies with a specific bent, you know, when you write policy, you only want to influence Congress or state legislatures primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are obviously political, whether they're not for profits or not, there is, you know, policy is political. They share too many of the same letters here um, <laughs> for you to think any other way. Uh, and then I've built coalitions. I've done PAC fundraising, individual campaigns up and down the ballot. And I've done um, local fundraising in Austin. I'm thinking it's been a long 20 years. Let me mm-hmm. tell you, it's been almost 20. Mm-hmm. I, actually, no. This is, I'm in my 20th year now that it's 2023. Um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just I made myself feel old. Oh my God. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I've helped advise like, oh, you're running for city council. You should do this or that, or here's a list or what have you. But like officially on the payroll, no, I mean, you have to kind of make your choices as to what's going to be um, right for the candidate and the campaign if they actually need to spend money on a fundraiser. Because um, some, some people don't. They just don't need to spend that. Mm-hmm. So uh, just purely out of curiosity, um, are you allowed to go home now if you're uh, <laughs> working for the other side or if they're old school Democrats? Oh, no, they they've, all, they've all switched. No, I mean, <clears throat> my parents, I figured out in 1992, I was 11 years old, soon to be 12, and it was Bill Clinton, obviously, Arkansas, and George H.W. Bush was running for re-election. And I thought we were Bill Clinton people. I thought my mom and dad were super Bill Clinton people because my grandmother was, my aunt was, and like everybody was. And so I see my mother in the tiny little town where she voted. It was back then you had the Scantron forms, and she filled it out on this like eight-foot table or whatever. And I was like, Mama, it's like... You, you circled in the wrong person. She looked at me <laughs> with, you know how all mothers have that look that it was just like your blood runs cold if she mm-hmm. gives you that look. It, she gave me a version of that look. And I was like, oh, God, what did I do? She's like, if you tell your grandmother that I put it this way, I will say you are a liar. <laughs> like, so we we kind of remain. I was like, oh, and she's and she gets me in the car and she's just like, baby doll, we're Republicans. She's like, we just don't tell your grandmother. And I was like, oh, oh. And so we stayed uh, in the closet as Republicans until about the ninety six election cycle. And then you found and I out was, grandma was a Republican. No, no, she definitely she died a Democrat for sure. Um, she the that would have been funny though. The two thousand cycle was rough on our relationship. She would hang up on me a lot because I was supporting President at that point. He was Governor Bush, but President Bush's um, two thousand campaign from college, and yeah, no, she would hang up. But now, um, I mean, my parents are staunchly Republican, and. We have switched my remaining aunt to our side. I see. That's good. Yeah. No, oh. everybody's super into it. Interesting. So is it, is a large part of it kind of party planning, like getting the right people in the room? Is that kind of like a big chunk of it? Um, Some of it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lo- I mean, fundraising, whether you are raising money for a political campaign or you're raising it for the United Way campaign or the local shelter, whatever, it's relationships. That's a big part of it. And it's just making sure that you yourself have the right type of relationships to be able to get to the people that have the checkbook to make sure that they know, hey, this candidate's coming to town or this candidate's running and here's why they're so important and why you need to invest in them. Um, but it, it's it's also making sure that the candidate starts to build and those those relationships too. 
because you want, I mean, look, no one's, no one's just sitting here being like, man, just give me a list. I'm just going to blindly write checks because you told me to, that doesn't happen very often. Wish it happened all the time, but it doesn't. <laughs> you know, people want to feel that the money that they are investing, because it is an investment. I mean, yes, it's given, giving it away. You're not going to like, oh, cool, here's my dividend check. But you're trying to get someone put into place that's going to give good policy decisions, sound policy decisions that align with your interests. So it is an investment. Um, so that's, that's part of why you want to make sure that the donor, the prospective donor and the candidate, like start to build some trust there too, because that's how you get them to give. How, how do you, how do you facilitate that? Is it just literally putting them in the same room and sometimes it's some that, music sometimes you're <laughs> just like, here's your call list, start calling and oh, yeah. you, you know, and you just give some background information. I mean, I don't do a lot of challenger races anymore. I mean, a lot of the people I work for um, and a lot of the organizations I work for are known commodities or something surrounding them are known commodities. Um, so you just get to that point in your career. It's just like, I need my life to be easier, not harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you believe in who you're working for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's getting them in the same room. It's setting meetings. It's, but the people think that people forget the most about fundraising is you have to ask for money. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a room with a candidate and I was like, here's your call list. And I'm the one hitting the numbers on the phone and they're like waiting or whatever to get through. And it's because that's such an old school way to do it, but it's still effective because you have to make most people hate asking people for money and doing that. So sometimes you have to really like force them to do their job with it. Um, so <laughs> you get, and they have a great conversation and they talk about whatever they, you know, all these aligned interests or people or a problem the donors have and what have you. Okay. Great conversation. All sounds good. They get off the phone and they're like, that was awesome. He's so going to be helpful. And I was like, how do you know? He's like, what do you mean? How do I know? And I'm like, you did not ask him for money. Hmm. And so that's, the hardest thing for everyone to do. Do you ever have to do that for them? Just intervene? Oh, you have to follow up. Oh, the follow up is like that's. I mean, do you have to be the one asking for money eventually? Sometimes, yeah. Mm. A lot of times, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's, you have to get the job done. Yeah, sure. Of course. Whatever it takes. So, I mean, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm really curious. How do you get paid? Is it as a percentage of the amount? You know, there, I'll tell you the general ways that people <clears throat> sure. get paid. You know, um, yeah. monthly retainers. And um, there is a lot of commission in fundraising political fundraising now for not-for-profit fundraising i mean everybody's kind of different but there is a code of ethics for certified professional fundraisers for not-for-profits and they're not supposed to take Mm -hmm. a commission got it but everybody's different but they might still do it anyway just sure i mean it's not like against the law got it i was just curious if there's a more kind of common way to do it yeah some people think that um giving a percentage like you know clients or whatever think oh I'm going to give you this percentage or whatever is more of an incentivizer mm-hmm. and maybe for some people it is it's not for me mm-hmm. it's more of an incentivizer is the fact you're like this is a ton of work and I want to be paid for my time mm-hmm. because I I can't hold a gun to anyone's head and force them to give us money and sometimes people just you just have a candidate that doesn't curl anyone's toes or you have someone who's been an office holder for so long and it's just like do we really have to give this joker money again I mean you know so how do you meet the donors? How do you, I mean, is this just somebody else's call sheet that you just happen to have? Or are you actually going out and hitting the street and meeting these people yourself? Um, I or? mean, it's, it's all the above. I mean, like there's, you know, your known donors. I mean, all of 
political giving is public record. I mean, for candidates and campaigns and most PACs, it's, it's you know, it's a... Uh, it's public record, depending on whether it's in Texas and their ethics commission, it's the federal election commission or any other state. You, It is of public interest for these names to be public and be known and be easily searchable. Mm-hmm. Now, there's other, you know, there's a lot of different uh, types of organizations that you can put together, like that are run through the IRS instead of the FEC, and you don't have to disclose who your donors are. Um, but, I mean, kind of once you do, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's almost like osmosis. You just know who is who. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So how do you meet the candidates? Are they just know you because you've been around a long time? Or Some of it's that way. Uh, there's cold a, call them? <laughs> oh, no. I don't think I've ever asked somebody for work before. Okay. I really don't. So how do they, no, how um, do they find so, you? So um, every campaign starts with one person that's not the candidate, and it is their general consultant. And there's, um, in a capital city like Austin, there's a ton of them on both sides of the aisle. And everyone kind of has their favorite fundraisers that they work with. Mm -hmm. And so they're the ones that are like, oh, such and such is on the ballot again this time. And they need a fundraiser. And they'll pick up the phone and they'll ask me. And then just all the relationships I've built over the last couple of decades, you know, for some of my coalition building and and policy driven and, you know, all those type of the groups that I do fundraising for that aren't inherently political um you know it's just it's kind of word of mouth relationship building in a lot of ways it's very same as fundraising mm-hmm. so just you just have a, a cadre of people who've known you, you've gone to the same parties you met them through so-and-so once and now they need somebody and like who is that person who did did your campaign their your uh-huh. campaign over here that's and, how it works yeah okay all word of mouth yeah there aren't a lot of fundraisers there's really aren't i mean people start out in it and stuff but it's I mean, it's why, why not? You think it's you know you're put in a very vulnerable position. I mean, you are literally asking to be rejected over and over and over again. Whether you feel like it's just you know obviously it's a straight up rejection if somebody goes no I don't want to give to that, but I mean the amount of time and effort that you spend in lobbying phone calls and no one returning your phone call or they ignore your email or like whatever I mean. People do it to candidates. People do it to office holders. People do it to fundraisers. It is what it is. We're inundated with people hitting us. I mean, just the sheer amount of like, if you're a major donor that's given, you know, six figures away annually, I can't even begin to imagine how many phone calls and emails and pieces of mail that they get on a daily basis, not to mention just the annual basis, Mm -hmm. because they are a known commodity and you got to shoot your shot. And so you um, were involved with the Texas Bar Association as well. Is that oh right? God, I haven't been down thought about the Texas Bar Foundation forever. Foundation, foundation. Yeah. So, as an example, would that be one of those places where you just meet a bunch of judges who want to get reelected? Or yeah, I did meet a lot of people, a lot of <clears throat> attorneys and judges and stuff there. I mean, obviously, it was the bar foundation. Um, you know, it's the only people that were around. But yeah, I mean, so that's you just like go down the halls, you're like, oh, hey, you know, and they recognize you, they see you again, they're like, oh, hey, I need somebody. Yeah. And then you just get sucked into judicial fundraising and that just becomes part of it. <laughs> I, I really lo- like, it's very important to me personally that we have judges on the bench that call balls and strikes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always happy to help however I can get a judge elected that's going to do that. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about deciding like this judge is the judge you want. I mean, 
judges are supposed to be very impartial. They're supposed they to. They are. <clears throat> they are supposed to be. <laughs> uh, so how do you go about deciding that this this judge looks an awful lot like our team or whatever, since they're not really supposed to advertise it? Uh, I mean, you file with a party in this state. Not every state for judges is that way. Like Arkansas, where I'm from, is a nonpartisan thing. But everybody knows who is what uh, there, you know. But here, no, you file with a party. So, so they, so you know, despite the fact that they are not really supposed to say. No, no, I mean, no, you file as either a Republican, a de- an independent or a Democrat to run for office. There's no other way for you to run for office in the state. Even as a judge. I didn't realize that. Yeah. You still have to file the party. Oh, right? wow. I thought that was sort of a. Nope. One of the few nope. uh, <laughs> free of politics or supposed to be free of politics Mm-mm. offices. I'm interesting. I didn't nope. know that. Um, <laughs> everyone would know anyway, it's the same as like the city council or city council and, uh, mayoral races in the state are nonpartisan, but everybody knows what party they come from when they run, you know, whether they had to file it or not. And you know, because of the, who they're affiliated with, where they come from, things they say. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking to them, are you like, this person is definitely going to, make the right so let's say you have two judges that are close enough how do you decide which one you're who's the pick? incumbent that's yeah. where you always start yeah that's what you're after you always start with who's the incumbent mm. well i mean like you want to make sure if it's a seat you keep the seat number one and you know there is something to be said about if you are a judge and you currently send like Going from being a, an attorney in a firm to being a judge is an adjustment. And there's a lot that goes into training to become a really good judge about the way like your demeanor, the way you approach a case, because you're not you're not arguing the case anymore. Like you're it's such a shift in how you've operated your entire career. And it's also a shift of like, man, I always practice this one type of law and now I have to you know, hear cases on all of these types of law. And I mean, it's a lot of getting up to speed. I mean, I know um, one of the things that is um, out in the universe right now in the Texas legislature is starting a board specialization. You know, there's always like all those boards of like, oh, family law or international law or a million others. There's all these like very official, very specific, have to study for a test board specializations and we are looking at um, moving that legislation through that judges would be required to have a special board specialization themselves, which I think is great because. It, what would it look like? What what sort of specialization are you referring to? On how to be a, like what it is to be a judge, like how you actually do it hmm. and making sure that judges are equipped and trained as effectively and efficiently as possible to do the job as well as they can possibly do it, because that is what the system, the judicial system deserves seems like that would be the bar association association. Oh yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the, there's a board, there's a board of specialization that does, that administers all of those in our state and the other 49 states or whatever. Everybody has their own kind of entity out there. Um, but no, it would be very official, mm. but it has to be set up through the legislature. So the idea then would be, this is the right way to get to not legislate from the bench or. Yeah. I mean, that's an important, that's an important component to, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know if that's going to be like a topic of this. I have no idea what's going to actually be in the boards sure. or anything like that. I haven't asked, but it'd be interesting to know for, for me. Um, I am very particular about, like, I never want 
any judge, whether it's somebody that I agree with on most of my values and somebody I disagree with on most of my values. I don't want anyone legislating from the bench. Like, it's not their job. Mm-hmm. It's the legislature's job. You don't like the law, go to your le- go to your state rep and tell him about it. Mm-hmm. Don't go to district court 344 or whatever and try to get somebody to, like, change the Constitution from the bench. Mm-hmm. It's not... It's, it, expectation setting is the most important thing in the world. It's why we're trained from age five on that there's a course syllabus. We all want a course syllabus in all things in life. And there are a few things that can guarantee us that, and that is adhering to the laws and norms and codes of the Constitution, whether it's the Texas Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, et cetera. I keep thinking there's some technology that could be built. Um, I kind of wanted to, to pass it by you just to, out of curiosity. So right now we have red versus blue on maps. Um, so you yeah. have districts that are primarily blue or primarily red or whatever. Mm-hmm. It seems like you could overlay those two and come up with a gradient. You know, more more black means more contested or more white means more contested or whatever direction you wanted to do that. Yeah, a lot of the pollsters actually do it that way. Oh, do they? Okay. Yeah, there's different shades of red. Some of them are pink. Some of them are really, really dark red. You know, yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of maps like that. Because it seems to me what you're really trying to do is find places that are contested and have heavy, heavy donors, or, you know, people who are... Not necessarily. I mean, there's donors from all over the place that are like, you know, there are donors in California that give a ton of money to people in Mississippi running for office. It's mm-hmm. because they just care about the ecosystem and the, you know, the overall sum of things. Mm. So it doesn't matter where they're located. Yeah, I mean, doesn't. Mm. No. I mean... Are you going to get 95% of your money from your backyard? Sure. At least like the state in which you reside? Sure. Yeah. Especially local district stuff, I would imagine. Yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to Congress and Senate, U.S. Congress and and all of that. I mean, gosh, there's, everybody has out-of-state donors on that because they care about the body as a whole. So how does that work? Do you, do you have to get them to fly in or you cold call them remotely or? Uh, you, it's usually a mix of, you know, phone calls. You see them at some sort of like gathering that one of the committees hosts or you are like, okay, cool. I'm going to go do a bunch of meetings in the Bay area over these two days. And one of, and we're going to have an event. I'm going to do all these in-person meetings and yeah, people, it's, it's part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you get people to actually donate? I mean, they've got them in the room, and <laughs> theoretically, they are on your team, whatever team that is, and now you're going to get them to hand over their money. How does that? What did that, I tell you at the that, uh, just like ten minutes ago? How does that work? What is what is the important piece to all of this? Their values, but specifically, no, what how, is the important piece of how you get people to give you money? Relationships. No, keep going. <laughs> what is? Know. You, tell you me. ask them to give you money. You just ask. You just ask. That's They're it. obviously in the room. They've learned about you. They're sitting there thinking like, cool, all right. They're expecting to be asked for money. So when you don't ask them for money, it's like, ooh, this guy might be stupid. Hmm. I'd think that. That's it. You got to, I mean, getting them in the room is yeah, 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 90% of it. Yeah, I mean, of getting them on the phone is 90% <laughs> of it. You sell yourself and then you make the ask. And you know what? You're going to get one of two answers. Yes or no, because no one's going to give you a maybe. So how do you get closer to a yes? Is there any s- tactics you use? Or is- I can't talk about that. No, c- I don't want to give away my say. I mean, um, uh, well. I mean, everybody's different. Every donor's different. Every candidate's different. Every client's different. Every 
I mean, there are so many times I've been in a situation, particularly with like organizations, that it's like this aligns so perfectly. Um, and just for whatever it's like, no, you know, for this grant cycle, this budget doesn't work or mm, we're too heavy on that. We've, we've invested so much like-minded money over here. We're going to like, let it cook, see what happens with it and revisit in a year. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people won't give you money. Mm -hmm. They're all actually valid and good. And it's not just like, "Mm, I didn't like him or "Mm, I don't think she'll win. You know, that is some of it too. I mean, if people... You know, uh, people who are perennial donors to political campaigns usually have a pretty good nose for who's a winner and who's a loser. Um, and, you know, people are like, yeah, I don't see where this dog fight's going. I don't, I'm not I'm staying out, not going to give money. Mm. So what about as an experience? So they show up in the room and they're, you know, given drinks, let's say, or whatever. I mean, I've, I've read a lot of studies on things like, People, if they smell vanilla, they're more likely to, you know, feel at home, that kind of thing. Um, is yeah, it any, I don't do any of that. You don't do any of that. Some of the fundraising events I do is so like, get in and hand me the check and get out. Like, <laughs> it's just what it, I mean, like, yeah. it is very important to me personally that you are a good steward of your donor's dollars. And I think back to the fact of how many times in my first job, which was, you know, President Bush, Opening up like direct mail pieces, you know, you get the letter in the mail and it's all like, oh, can you chip in 10, 20 or 50, even $50 to give us mail? And those are very geared towards grassroots donors, people who give traditionally give less than $100. And you'd get this $5 bill back in the mail with this note, handwritten, like spindly handwriting note. And it's some 88-year-old grandmother who's on Social Security, and she'd tell you, I can only afford to give you $5, but I love President Bush, and I wanted to do something to help. And all I ever think about is just like, yeah, people are like, here's a $5 million check, and don't bat an eye. But I always think about that lady who gave the $5, and I'm like, we have to be really good stewards of her money. Mm -hmm. And so spending a bunch of money on, you know, a top-shelf bar and people are going to stay at your party for an hour or all kinds of food that no one's going to eat and all these bells and whistles and, like, you know, spend $20,000 when you're trying to raise, you know, 70 out of a city or whatever because, you know, there's limits on what you can give federally and all that. But sure, it's like, I'm not being a good steward of these people's money. Interesting. <clears throat> but it seems like you're – whatever experience you're going to have to put in front of somebody who's going to get $5 million is probably not going to be, you know, you'd be surprised. Like you'd be surprised. I mean, some people, I mean, it all depends on where they come from in life. Truly. I mean, there is no one size fits all with this stuff. Yeah. There's like, Oh yeah. This list of tactics, kind of like your checklist you had for your podcast. Like, sure. I bet you a lot of podcasts have a checklist that are similar to that. There's kind of some table stakes things like make sure the camera's rolling. I mean, you know, but outside of Chris, that, you hear that? I mean, they should be rolling. <laughs> no, right. hope, oh, hope we, I didn't I hope, know that. Oh, my God. Hope we I hit think that we, button. <laughs> so sorry. Let's yeah. turn them on now. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, again, so much of it just comes back to who is the candidate? Who is the donor? Who has the relationship? Then it does bells and whistles and almost like you're trying to, I don't know, fake them out or like, I don't know, fool them into like, oh, we've brought you to Shangri-La and you should open your wallet. I mean, no. Hmm. People people who are traditionally in this space as donors, I mean, 
They are giving money because they want something to happen or to not happen legislatively, politically, policy-wise, what have you. They want to make sure we have control of Congress or we have a Republican in the White House or whatever it is. They don't necessarily want to be like, cool, I don't want to spend more than 45 minutes of this thing. Mm -hmm. I'll drink half a glass of that somewhat crappy Chardonnay. The check's already been mailed. I'm going to shake his hand, and that's going to be that. I've definitely been to and fundraisers. And some people that really just want, sorry, I just got you yeah, off. go ahead. And then there's some people that, I don't know if I can say that. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say <laughs> something. Um, Allegedly. But, but there are some people who, well, just for whatever reason, they operate differently. They might be new to the political giving world at a high level. And so they do want the bells and whistles, but you can figure out who those people are and you can give them that. I, I have been to very different types of political meetings where some amount of donation was appreciated and some were, you know, just kind of at a Mexican restaurant and, you know, you get one plate of random sort of Mexican food that, I mean, probably a grand total of a dollar type of, you know, yeah, sure. worth of food kind of thing. Sure. And others that are, you know, very experiential. And, yeah. you know, you're meeting this incredible person who's not even the candidate, just this other incredible person and sure. have this big experience. So the delta between those experiences is so vast, it's kind of hard to put them on the same gradient even. But it also seems like the people that they invited were very different. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where I was going with that question. Yeah, you like, have a specific audience for everything that you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like there's this type of donor, you know, I mean, in Houston, there's 72 different types of donors cause it's so huge and there's money there and what have you, New York, you would never do an event like you would do in Houston. I mean, you know, it's just, you have to just kind of know. And, and if you don't know, if you are like, Oh gosh, we really need to go to Grand Rapids, Michigan. You're like, I don't know. You find through your network, a local fundraiser and hire them to help you oh really so you actually partner up with local fundraisers? oh yeah you do that a lot interesting i didn't know that, <clears throat> I that a lot. and they do it with you i'm assuming if they're flying in and they're like i would like to meet your donors in this neighborhood or whatever no you pay them to help you with where you are going because they're local no, no I'm, sa- I'm saying if they were flying into austin let's say you would oh be, yeah sure it might sure. hire you to do the same thing sure yeah interesting um so like I have run into at least a couple of people who have said, if, you, if you're going to s- certain locations, you have to spin this message entirely differently than another place. So, for instance, if you're going to go near the border, you're, gonna wanna t- you're not going to want to talk about uh, border security to uh, a Hispanic group, but you might want to talk about marriage um, and, and family values, let's mm-hmm. say. Uh, but you go up in Dallas, and you definitely want to talk about border security. Um, and so... I'm not exactly sure how you do. Do you coach the people? Oh, yeah, that, you have to. I mean, you never are just going to be like, all right, there's a the door. Hit it. Throw, like, throw I mean, you know, out on stage. Yeah, no, you're not going to do that. I mean, there's, I mean, the amount of like briefing materials and papers and conversations and stuff. I mean, you as the fundraiser and a lot of times are only as successful as your client. I mean, how they're, I mean, so you want to set them up for success as much as possible. I mean, it's the same as if, lobbying or you're working for a candidate or you're working for a large group like you always want to put your best foot forward I mean I'm sorry but you just want to do that in life in general is put your best foot forward Mm -hmm. it's like why my grandmother always told us don't go to the grocery store without putting something on your face because you don't know who you're going to run into Mm -hmm. it's the same thing 
always, you know, be prepared. So do you end up with dossiers on the potential donors and then you'll share that or the parts that are relevant anyway to the. Sometimes you tell them stuff that doesn't seem particularly relevant because they can be conversation starters. Interesting. Huh. So, you know, this person has a couple of kids and you're like, oh, you should talk to them about the kids. Um, Or they're having some health problems. Hey, you should really talk to them about or you should avoid the sometimes some things to avoid. Uh, I mean, interesting. Yeah, I mean it's it's different to do like some of this type of stuff with um, the organizations I work for. I mean, and that's where like I really spend the majority of my time these days raising money is just for organizations. So mm-hmm. I don't have to do these candidate dossiers and flyouts and like all this stuff as much as I used to, which is great. So you have somebody to do that for you then? No, I just don't take on that work. You just don't bother. It's time consuming. <laughs> There's other interests I have in life. I remember the first time someone showed me a dossier that they had made um, on a friend of mine, not on me. And it was pretty creepy out. It was pretty terrifying because it was pretty accurate. There's one um, small little you error. You know what's funny is you put all that he, your friend, put all that information out himself oh, online. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> He's a security guy, too, which is even more terrifying. Hand and scraped uh, his stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> and I asked the same guy, I'm like, so uh, you don't have one of those on my company, do you? Because it was, it was on his company, the entire company. But He's the CEO of the company. So I'm like, do you have one of those on my company? He's like, no, but I do have one on you. And uh, I thought that was rather terrifying. But I guess if you've done it to ourselves, I know we really have put enough information. Out I there mean, thank God we know that you once were eating and drinking your favorite margarita at Matt's El Rancho or whatever. I mean, like I've, I mean, we've all been guilty of posting stupid crap we shouldn't post on social media. But I mean, it's a goldmine for people who need information. Well, that certainly helps when they're kind of walking around the room, shaking, shaking hands. They already sure. kind of know what people look like. and It's really helpful, especially because there are so many times, like there are so many, you know, elected officials um, that have been elected multiple times, years and years and years of it. And they meet so many people and they never want to ever make somebody who's been so generous with their help and support feel like it's the first time they've ever met them. So, you know, you have to also give it like, oh, don't forget they gave you a check last year or, you know, that type of. Mm-hmm. So it feels a little like a parlor trick when you're there. Like, oh, that was so funny that last time you talked about whatever. Like, wow, what a great memory. <laughs> like A little bit. It <laughs> I mean, is. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's copious notes. I mean, and it's also um, in kind of building that whole, these people are always helpful. Don't forget about them. You know, it's. You know, thank you notes are such a, I mean, number one, they're easy to write. And the fact that if people don't write them, you're horrible and you're probably <laughs> like ninth level of hell is where you're headed. But, um, but you'd be surprised. They like have the, to be handwritten then. Yeah. You can't do it by email. Um, no, no, no. I always mail them and stuff. Um, but like the amount of people who don't send thank you notes anymore that is like, I gave that dude a check and I didn't get anything in the mail. And so that's another thing that can now like set people apart too. It's like, Oh my gosh, this guy wrote me a handwritten thank you note. It doesn't take that long. Like I set aside time on every Friday and write thank you notes for whatever I have to thank people for, for the week. Mm. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, it is a big deal and it should happen, but like the work itself is just like, uh, don't you feel the gratitude here? It should be easy to pin out three quick sentences of like how grateful you are that somebody did something nice for you. Mm-hmm. How's all that? That is, that is definitely uh, an art that is lost. It is and sad. Yeah, that is a little sad. I mean, it's just like, I'm sorry, but a text thank you is just not sufficient. So 
there's a lot of talk about the tax incentive aspect of giving, right? So uh, not for the, profit giving. You do know yeah. that there is no tax incentive whatsoever for political giving. Um, well, there is the concept of putting money into companies and those companies can have some sort of loss associated with them. And there's ways that you can sort of shell the money around. I don't think I understand your line of thinking. Well, I would... What I was really going at um, was the Citizens United case versus the FEC mm-hmm. was kind of a, I don't know. Dragging it all out from old school. <laughs> well, it was a landmark case. Um, I think sure. it's one of those sort of massive. Where it said that corporations are people too. Yeah, effectively. Effectively, yeah. Which um, I'm not exactly sure. Um, the amount of implications that has had on American society, but I guarantee you it's not zero. Um, so just j- just for the audience's sake, it might be worth explaining what that whole thing was, uh, if you can if Okay, you can do let it. me muster up for yeah. my memory. Sure, sure. Um, so FEC versus Citizens United, I think essentially what the case was, God, this was so long ago. Um, I think uh, basically Citizens United raised and spent money that was potentially a no-no under the FEC rules. FEC, for those of you out in the audience, Federal Election Commission. Uh, The commissioners are always appointed by whoever is president, but they serve certain terms, so there's always a mix of Republicans and Democrats on the commission. Anyway, it's where members of Congress, um, both House and Senate and the president, and anyone running for those offices files their reports of how we know who gave them money, how much money they gave them, when when they gave them that money, and then on the flip side of that, how the campaigns or organizations spent the money, who they spent the money with, how much they spent it, and when they spent it. Um, so essentially at that time, there was zero corporate dollars in um, federal politics, and federal politics only encompasses U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and the presidency. Now, the whole reason that there were, just a fun fact, um, the whole reason that corporate dollars were taken out of politics actually happened under Teddy Roosevelt, who, for those of you listening at home, is my number one favorite president ever. Hmm. Interesting. Um, ever. I'd to know why. I, well, we can get to that. No sure. problem. I'll tell you my top three. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, anyway, he... J.P. Morgan and John Rockefeller and all these names you see on buildings from all those years ago. And he all kind of were brought up in the same circles because, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was affluent in New York, you know, all that. And from an affluent family. And anyway, he just kind of got tired of them trying to, like, tell him what to do and always try to use their money to get what they wanted out of politicians. And so he was the one behind pushing through Congress the bill to take corporate dollars out. Kind of interesting. He just kind of thumbed his finger at the man. And I always appreciated that. Now, because uh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about corporate dollar. I mean, I don't know if I actually really care um, of how the money is. Because one way or another, like, we'll figure it out. Of Like, if people want to spend money on something, they're going to figure out how to spend money on it. That's one thing I have learned. Whether it's buying things for themselves or contributing it somewhere. But uh, so Citizens United actually made the distinction in the U.S. Supreme Court that corporations are actually under um, the Constitution and under the federal code that has to do with federal elections and how they raise their money. A corporation is the equivalent of a person. Now, 
only in respect to being a third-party donor to help assist campaigns. It is still to this day you cannot, as Walmart, write a check to Chip Roy, who's a member of Congress, I think here where we're sitting, I think it's his, it might be Lloyd Doggett though, but you can, Walmart can't just write a, here's a check from our corporate account to your coffers, that can't happen. The only place that corporate dollars have a have a place, and I'm about to get super into the weeds, so bear with me. That's fine. Go ahead. That there are a couple places that corporate dollars actually have a place in um, politics, and that is through what's called a super PAC. It's a specialized PAC that you don't spend money directly with a campaign who's running for Senate or House or President. You spend money about them. Can't even really say on behalf of them because there can be no, and I mean no, coordination whatsoever between what the campaign is doing and what the super PAC is doing, but it does help, you know, raise big ticket dollar items like, you know, TV commercials are expensive and they're particularly expensive in the month of October in an even numbered year, especially in swing <laughs> states. I mean, like, you know, TV, TV stations aren't stupid. They're going to charge more for their commercials when they know they got a bunch of people competing to have the time. Um, so it's really smart to have a super PAC, you know, run a bunch of political ads for you. You're grateful for that to happen. Now, the other time that there can be corporate dollars in politics on the kind of federal side is, um, you know, there's like the Republican National Committee and there's the Democratic National Committee and they have things that are boring to pay for like the mortgage on their headquarters or the light bill or the water bill. There's a special fund that can be used to like help offset the costs of that, like Mm, out of corporate. So it doesn't have, it's not my friend who gave, you know, that sweet 88 year old woman who gave us the $5, her $5 isn't necessarily going to the electric bill. Mm -hmm. It can actually be spent on campaigns. So my understanding of the citizens United bill or, um, God, I hadn't thought about case. that forever. It has been this way in so long. It, I was just it, like, oh, it, I just went back and just looked at it just so I was somewhat fresh on it. Um, Glad you're fresh. I'm not. Uh, somewhat. Uh, <sighs> I'm not a constitutional uh, lawyer or anything. But, I am uh, not either, just for your awareness, <laughs> nor am I a, what is it else you're supposed to say? I am not a financial advisor. <laughs> Don't take my advice on stocks. <laughs> but the case, initially, I thought I was a little against the idea of any concept of companies having any real rights as a person that seems very odd to me. But then I went and actually read the details of that case and it seemed like what was really happening is they, they, they had a movie or something and they're trying to put this movie out, I think two months before the election. Yeah, I forgot about the movie part of it. I mean, again, this has been forever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a weird sub part of the case, but it ended up being a first amendment issue. It's like, well, we should be able to, to have the same rights to have the first amendment, you know, we should be able to talk about whatever we want to talk about. And that's why it had similar, um, carve yeah, outs yeah. as companies. That's yeah. how they, yeah. they said it's, it's close enough to being a person. It should have the same rights as a person and, and the concept of, uh, being able to talk about things. So in that context, I actually do agree that it's a good uh, case law, but it kind of had this trickle down of saying that companies can donate and, um, interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a fascinating thing and it's it's been fascinating too to watch like you know where I started in all of this um you know Citizens United hadn't happened yet you know I mean of course um and where we're kind of like super packs were not a thing I mean we barely had the internet I mean like we barely had websites <laughs> and we definitely didn't have like Facebook and all this stuff when I started and there was no like I mean we talked about like oh should we have something on the website so people can donate I mean like nobody used that I mean and it was just so funny to think like 
how far we've come on so many things in just 20 years. But anyway, um, it's, Every, it everything is, was MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even have MySpace. Uh, I'm just teasing. No, I didn't. I mean, Friends, I think Friendster, it, maybe. Yeah. I no, I didn't have. I mean, we didn't do any of that crap. None of that crap. I barely texted at that just point. Rewinding the tape further and further here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like, whatever. I know. It's just like, I'm really not that old. I promise. Um, <laughs> But it's uh, it's interesting to see, though, like how everything was so rigid back then. And now we just have so many different avenues to use to, as I like to kind of spread the good word, you know. I mean, and of course, here's the thing about it. And this is where everybody needs to just like take a deep breath and calm down. Anything the opposition to you and your interests and your party can do, you can do it too. Everything's equal on that front. Yeah, maybe you figured out your donors spend more money than your opponent's donors. Great, whatever. Maybe your opponent's donors spend more money than you. You still have to spend the money smartly. You still have to, you know, make good decisions in the strategy of how you're going to get somebody elected or some ballot initiative passed or whatever the heck you're trying to do. And you also, well, maybe until this year, but... Most of the time, you actually do have to have a legitimately good candidate on the ballot. You can't have some bozo. I mean, it used to. <laughs> well, we'll get to candidates in a second. Yeah, I don't know. But but at the end of the day, though, where people, I think, get themselves so tripped up on being upset or being so elated about Citizens United case is the fact, okay, well, it didn't just weigh heavier for one party over the other. Like, we all have equal with this. Mm-hmm. So. Well, yeah, to your point, um, Republicans had a lot of large corporations, but the Democrats had unions, and that's where they could still... Yeah, and that was where there was equality, yeah, in a way. In a, in a way. Yeah. So if you were to have and to... I could s- say some really hateful things right now, and I'm not going to do it. You could do it. Why not? Because... Um, this, this is your time. You can say whatever you think, anything you want. Um, I think... No. Let's not. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so if you were to try to steel man the argument for why um, corporations should be able to donate, what would that what would that be? Is it just that it's it's equal or, or is it uh, is there any real oh, upside? Well, I mean, that question is just totally different. I mean, um, I mean, from the dis- court decision, I mean, that's where the equality comes from or whatever is the fact that just like, OK, well, Democrat campaign or you can have super PACs just the same as Republicans can. I mean, just the same as independent groups or libertarians or Green Party. Everyone can have a super PAC. No one's being cut out from having that. Um, I mean, that's where I'm coming with equality. I mean, but the overall thought of corporations being able to do yeah, that, I, mean, I don't really care. I mean, it doesn't matter to me. But do you feel like someone would care and say, oh, this is the reason we should have it? Is there a... Is there a moral high ground there to say, like, this is a good idea and we should definitely have it? Um, well, you know what? I mean, I think if you wanted to really think about moral high ground on it, think about the amount of franchise and insurance and and property and various other taxes corporations pay. That is a huge part of the overall um, money going into a state. I mean, this is a little bit of a different argument because state dollars, anyway, state dollars, federal dollars when it comes to campaigns are different. But corporations pay a lot of money um, in taxes and various forms of taxes. And so to me, it seems like they're a taxpayer just like I'm a taxpayer. Hmm. So 
why wouldn't they? That's interesting. I, that's, I had not heard that argument. I, like I mean, that. I think what is the split here in Texas on property tax? I think individual homeowners pay what is the equivalent of 40% of all the property tax, you know, generated in a calendar year. Well, that means that corporations pay 60%. And they get, uh, yeah, they get incentives and all that. But, I mean, they're paying in. So, why don't they get some sort of a say? I mean, we're not going to be like, okay, Walmart, here's your one vote. Like, you get to vote now. Here's the ballot box. Your precinct number is this. I mean, I don't think that. But, I mean, again, anyone can spend corporate dollars now on a super PAC. It's all equal as to who can have one. I mean, I guess if you don't have any rich friends or anyone that wants to support you, I mean, it kind of sucks. But, I mean, but you still have the option to have one. So, similar along the same vein, um, how do you feel about PACs? Are they, are they PACs the right, are awesome. Are they the right vehicle for the future? Do you think that's the... the PACs have been around since the beginning of time. Yeah. Some version it, of them. Yeah, but do you think that's the right thing and... If so, why specifically packs? What as would you replace to, a pack with? Well, just direct donations. Oh no, I th- I like the way that it's all kind of separated out. I Why's think that? it. Um, well, I think it. I think it's helpful. I think it's it's another pot of money for a candidate to have access to and to spend and to, and to make sure that they're doing the right thing in regards to their campaigning and whatnot and being able to keep their job or take a new job um, in regards to what they get elected to. Um, I think they're very helpful. I think, and when you drill it down for like, you know, we've talked a lot about federal and I'd like to talk a little bit more about Texas, sure. if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. But, you know, Texas is different. You know, every state has their own laws when it comes to their political giving and who can take what and when they can take it and all that. And, you know, in Texas, we're fortunate the law says that, you know, individuals can give unlimited amounts of personal money to candidates on the ballot. Great. No corporate dollars whatsoever can be spent on a campaign in this state. Um, I mean, if you're running for state rep, you can't have a corporate super PAC because the state law obviously supersedes the federal. Mm-hmm. And um, PACs here, um, you know, are very specific in regards to this industry or this industry's association or our aligned values around this or we feel like, we should be free enterprise or we're pro-choice or we're whatever. There's a, thousands and thousands of them that are registered in state. And they actually make a difference in campaigns. They make a huge difference in campaigns. And they do it not because they want, oh, we're going to control everything and tell everyone to do it. Like, no, they want good people that align with their values and have the sim- have similar goals as they have to be elected to office who are making decisions. It's simple. And it's a great way, though, for donors themselves to go, cool, I'm going to be a part of this association, and I'm going to give money to this pack because I've got 50 other people that are like-minded to me and my interests. And if we pool our money, we're more effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it increases the odds of any specific group being able to move the needle politically. Yeah. So... I, a buddy of mine came up with this idea a while ago about the idea of a, a centralist pack where if let's say you have two pe- two people on one extreme or the other doesn't really matter okay but one is slightly more in the center than the other instead of arbitrarily saying i like one candidate versus the other or saying i like their politics just say whichever one is closer to the center 
um, is the money that that's where the money's going to go. And the idea would be to bring more and more people into a more centrist view of the world. What's your feelings on that? That one? sounds silly. No offense to your friend. Why is that? It seems like a reality show. How so? It doesn't seem serious. Well, the, uh, it, I, he was quite serious. I'm um, certain he was quite, there's a lot of people very serious about things. And no, again, no offense to your friend, but it's like, I don't see anyone that would want to fund that. Um, Maybe you should re-explain it. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, because I'm like, uh, it, it seems like both parties are moving more and more extreme. They, well, they are and they aren't. But keep going. Okay. We just have louder voices. That on both ends of the extremities are the loudest voices. Right, and then they race to the middle, and the as soon as they get past the primaries, right? Sure, there's some of that, but I, again, though, the loudest voices are the crazy ones. So on right. both sides, right. So his idea would be, let's try to circle whoever's closer to the center. Not necessarily the center. That's not that's not the goal. Okay. Uh, but let's say we have two people who are total wackadoos in either direction, just way out of left field in, okay. some, in some dimension. But one of them is closer to the center. Well, whatever whoever's closer to the center is the one who gets the money. Just trying to drive people more to a more moderate way of looking at oh, things. Oh, money doesn't change people's minds. So you're saying money money doesn't change people's minds. So you're saying that donating money to a political campaign doesn't actually help them change people's minds? No. Not at all. So what's the money for then? To make sure that somebody who agrees with you 80% of the time gets elected. Um, no one's gonna tell. Okay, here's here's a couple th- couple of facts. We might be talking past each other. Yeah, here. let me let me th- throw some facts down on you. Sure. Giving someone a five thousand dollar pack check from the UPS pack or whatever is never gonna make somebody go. Well, damn, they gave me five thousand dollars. Every time they come with to me with some sort of a, I mean, you need to vote this way or this other way. I have to listen to them because they gave me five thousand dollars. Zero. Like. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, second of all, no one should be expected that they could, A, buy somebody's vote with a pack check, or B, that anyone should sit there and say, yeah, my vote's for sale for a $5,000 pack check. Like, that's that's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't think that's what he was suggesting. But giving someone, so let's just, let's let's throw some fake names out this. So we've got... John Doe and we've got Jane Doe, and they're both really, really far-right people. And out of, you know, 10 votes, 10 of the last votes, John took 10 straight-up wackadoo votes. But Jane only took nine, like the position of nine straight-up wackadoo votes. So we consider her to be the more reasonable of the two. And so we're the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and we have our pack, and we think if we give Jane a $5,000 pack check, that she will now vote less wackadoo than she has before because she's like, great, people like me. and That's not what he's suggesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Please explain. So he wouldn't be suggesting that the, the candidates would suddenly change who they are. No. He's saying that giving them the 5000 is more likely to get them elected because now they can spend it and you know, yeah, more well, campaigns. Sure. And so gradually you're going to find that the people who are more 
obviously there would be a lot between here and there. But if this took off and it actually was working, let's say you'd have a lot more people getting elected in the center, which might say, well, yes, the people who are very crazy and loud, uh, they are crazy and loud and they make good headlines. They're getting a lot of publicity for free, but they don't get elected. It turns out people who are closer to the middle get elected because they get more of these dollars from these the centrist pack. The thing that you are forgetting and your friend is forgetting is um, all the people that sit in the House chamber represent different areas with different voters. So like Jane Doe and John Doe, Jane Doe and John Doe don't represent the same place. So they have two separate groups of voters. Yeah, I'm talking about in the exact same location. In the same same district, let's say. Okay, well, you're not going to have two elected officials in the same district. Right. So there will never be a head-to-head comparison like that. Um, well, you would if they're, if it's at the primaries is really what we're talking about. Oh, well, but st- we're talking about things that they might do or things they might not do and what have you when you're talking about primary. So you, yes. sure, give money to the more centrist, but you got to think about who turns out on both sides of the aisle, whether you're D's or R's, who turns out in a primary the most faithful of the party. So a lot of times what ends up happening is the wacky one will get elected mm-hmm. out of a primary. We'll win the primary. So if that's the case, is there is there any sense at all in spending money on a centrist? If you are a centrist candidate, and I don't mean centrist like in the center, I mean yeah. slightly less crazy. Yeah, there the is, depending that's... on what the numbers are and how you can, like who you turn out to vote in a primary. Sure. Okay, so there it's not just that the 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 R's are going to vote for the most radical R. There, no, like I vote in a Republican primary and I never vote for the radical person. Okay. All right. So there is some sense. It's just making this. people like me remember, oh, it's primary day and I need to go vote. You know, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. And so if the more centrist candidate is the one that reminds you and is in your inbox or whatever. And maybe, yet you've learned about and you're yeah. excited about or whatever. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, depending on every primary is different, of course. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, sometimes you have to attack your primary opponent and be like, this person's nuts. Like, we shouldn't elect this person. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes you just want to make it all, like, positive, positive, positive of, like, I'm when I get to the state legislature, here's the three things I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Cut property taxes and love dogs and whatever. <laughs> I mean, whatever they're going to do. So one other thing he wanted to do with this is once you get past the primaries, now there's just one on each side, one R, one D, mm-hmm. whichever one is closer to being the center, then you back that person. So you might actually flip If you're a corporate sides. pack, yeah, yeah, sure. Like yeah. if you're all, you know, if you're Walmart's pack or whatever, you're going to, I mean, there's a lot of data that goes, I mean, a lot of where these pack checks come from, it has to do with the fact of like, oh, we have all these operations in this part, this district, or we, you know, whatever. I mean, there's, everybody has a different reason for giving, but yeah, I mean, sometimes what they do or, or They'll look and be like, cool, leadership is solidly R. This the chamber's not going to flip. We're going to support more R's because we have an agenda we need to get pushed through. And if we don't support mainly R's, probably not going to get our agenda pushed through. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts that have to go into, like, who gives money. And, I mean, too, like, the easiest thing that most people do, and it's a cop-out, but I get why they do it, and it, but it's, it makes their lives so much easier to do it this way just because of all the things I just said is, there's usually a friendly incumbent rule. Like, if you haven't been a shitty incumbent, like, you've walked the walk for, for a little bit of, like, you haven't completely gone nuclear on their issues or whatever, a lot of times they'll support you somewhat or at least not support your your opposition. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's just, but again, they're in business and so they're good at doing business. I mean, it's not personal. Well, one would hope. <laughs> but it's not personal. I mean, yeah. like so many people get so upset when they're just like, oh, but I'm, I'm the challenger to this person and he's terrible and blah, 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 all this stuff. But like XYZ pack didn't give me money. And I'm like, cause they decided to ruin your life. I'm like, that's not personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this stuff is people are very strategic from up and down the ballot to the people who give them money every way around it. Like there's always a reason why people do anything. So that's we, not just in political giving. That's yeah, in life. Sure, sure. So we, we talked about uh, individual donors, but we, I don't think we actually covered off on corporate donors. Is there sort of like a different tactic to go hit them up? Do you have to do like browbeating and talk to them about their no, business? No, there's always just like, like specific people. Like there's usually a government relations person that works for them. You usually go with them. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and you're just like, hey, this is what the deal is or whatever. And they always have a... They know what their budget is every year that they have available to spend on whether they're in Texas or they're given to federal, whatever it is. And, you know, it's it's the same concept of the relationship, though. I mean, I can't just like figure out like, oh, who's Boeing's lobbyist in Wyoming and just like cold. I mean, like it's not going to work very well. Mm-hmm. You have to build relationship with those people, too. Yeah, and so how do you go about convincing them that this is the candidate? Is it, Do you have to come up with business cases to explain? Like, do they have to... Say, no, like, you sh- like- usually show them polling. I mean, you know, you're like, okay, we're going to win because of X, or here's our path to victory, or here's all the things we're going to do. And, oh, it's a type of, I mean, so many districts, it's kind of, uh, it comes down to the general. I mean, the way that districts are drawn this time, whether and it doesn't matter who's behind the redistricting and what state it is. It's just, you know, you naturally try to keep tribes together. And so, you know, you can look at a district, and there's very few toss-up districts left in the country for anything. And that's okay. I don't know. I mean, like, frankly, I don't know how much better off we would be as a society if we had so many more toss-up districts. It just costs that much more money. There'd be that much more involvement, et cetera. And it'd just be, I I don't know if people can handle the, like, oh, in this cycle, this Democrats win, in this other cycle, Republicans win, and it's constantly, you're constantly getting somebody new to represent you. I don't know if we necessarily want a ton of districts that have that going on. I don't know. Hmm. I'm not saying we do or we don't. I, I legitimately don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, so in terms of donations, I think one of the things that keeps a lot of people away from donating is because they're going to end up on the books. They're going to be yeah, somebody. People who, do have concerns about that, sure. So uh, first of all, do you know any ways to keep it off the books? Nope, I won't play that game. Yeah, okay. Um, so one of the people in my... Well, I mean, you could give all your money to a 501c4 that can do education around campaigns and policies and what have you. And they don't have to disclose their donors. You can do that. Okay. So there, so there is, so it is a path, but, but it's not a great path because there's, I mean, you're limited on what you can do as a C4 for an actual campaign. So, yeah. Um, so this one guy, um, I don't know him, but I know of him very well. Um, his name's Brendan Mike. Uh, and he's the inventor of JavaScript. Um, oh, okay. And I was, he was like, the am C- I supposed to know him? He's CTO of, um, was the CTO of Mozilla. And somebody went through and I... Oh, that guy. I forgot his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they tried to embarrass him and call him out and have people like, you know, it was like the original doxing. It was. <clears throat> so they basically yeah. went through, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, um, they went through and actually found out that this uh, person had 
invested some amount of money. It wasn't a lot of money. I think it was like 400 bucks or something, some very small amount of money. It was stupid what they like called about. I don't remember the specifics either, but I remember thinking like, you're mad at him over that. Um, It was a, it was a anti-gay marriage bill, I think. And please don't quote me on that if I'm wrong. Uh, it was like a prop six thing. I'm not exactly in California. Sure. I think it was something like I'm that. I'm not exactly yeah, sure. Yeah. I probably should have double checked. It's this. okay. But anyway, his career, I wouldn't say it was completely ruined, but he was definitely run out of Mozilla. Like, you know, <laughs> with pitchforks. I mean, yeah. He was, yeah. he was definitely ostracized. It's yeah. And I, I was sort of in the middle of the thick of a lot of those conversations because we were creating a browser around the same time and it caused a lot of controversy and, and um, Mozilla is actually open source software. So you could actually upload anything yeah. you want into the code base, including yeah. religious symbols and, and so what's going to happen if you do that. And it opened up the floodgate of all these interesting conversations. But um, like how is it a good thing that Brennan Ike is run out of town for a decision he made to back up political campaign? I don't think it's a good decision good thing for that to happen to anybody people that i like people that are on my side people who i don't like people who are not i don't want anyone to be doxxed i don't want anyone to be dinged for the fact that they felt a civic pull enough to say you know what i want to give five hundred dollars to that person running for congress I mean, we have such a huge civic engagement problem in this country. And part of why we do, there's a lot of reasons why we do. But now we have a new threat to civic engagement. And that's the fact of like, if I go and I do this or somebody finds out how I voted or what have you, I'm going to get run out from my company because there's some militant little group that decides everyone should be exactly like me. And if you're not, we're going to harass you until you leave and we're going to demand you're fired. That's not healthy. That's not good. That's not good for society. That's not good for people's personal lives. It's ridiculous that we are in that situation in America right now. Ridiculous. I think that there's got to be some some technical solution where really what you're trying to do by having open secrets, et cetera, is just making sure that people don't donate too much. I'm assuming. That's um, where it started. I, I don't know if it's pure like that anymore. I don't know. But it seems like you could easily build something where it's, I mean, there's always been this like gotcha mentality to opensecrets.org. No offense to you listening from opensecrets.org, but you know what you are. But like, but, and they would not put the little scale on the cover. Oh, 68% of John Gordon's donations come from manufacturing or, you know, they wouldn't put that kind of stuff out there if they weren't trying to make a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like there should be some way. And also, could- um, the FEC's website is public. Anyone can search it and pull everyone's exact reports. We don't actually need opensecrets.org to know anything. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way to fix it. Um, Tell me what you think. How do you fix it? Well, I think if you have every single person who's donating to any single location, whatever, all of that can be tracked with a unique key, let's say. And so you know that this person is not allowed to invest any more into this unique key, and that's it. You don't know where what that unique key is related to. You don't know when or where, except for it was within this cycle, um, and then you could say, well, the sum of these things can't be more than a certain amount. Otherwise, it opens an investigation. Um, it'd be very easy to develop something like this, I think. And you would still retain all the the purpose of Open Secrets originally, which was hopefully just identifying fraudulent activity and then totally reduce people's reluctance to spend. Well, you forget who the 
liability and the impetus is on in catching people giving you too much money and it's on the candidate. It's not on the donor. The candidate gets in trouble, not the donor. So even more reason. No, I mean, the candidate will always return that money if it's over immediately. Yeah, yeah, but it, it seems like even more reason to keep it secret then. I mean, if that's if that's really the goal of this whole thing to prevent candidates from accidentally taking too much money or purposely, that's easily identified with software like that. Yeah, but I mean, you, I mean, who would admit it? I mean, you can't have the government administer software like that. You just can't. Mm. I mean, I see where you're going with that, but no, that's bad. I mean, they already have worse data, though. It seems like this would be one thing to reduce that. Because you're not worried about somebody working behind a data center pulling a report. I mean, that could easily be monitored, easily identified. What you're really worried about is the masses looking at each other and saying, well, this person's bad because they liked XYZ candidate or this other candidate or whatever. No, I mean, sunlight is important on all of this stuff. Like, people have the ability to find this stuff. I mean, it's the same. I mean... People file their own tax returns or have pay somebody to do it. It's the same thing. You just can't search people's tax returns. In this case, you can search FEC reports or you can search TEC reports or whatever they call them in Arkansas, Louisiana, and what have you. They're all part of a public database because all of these entities have code and laws on the books in their individual states and in Congress that the public has every right to know who gives money to stuff. It doesn't really have anything to do with, though, like, oh, you spent money where you weren't supposed to, or, oh, this person gave you $100 more than they were supposed to this cycle or whatever. It's not about that. It's about the general public having the ability to find the information as to who is financing campaigns in your area. So, you, so you like that data then? It yeah, sure. Like, mm. I mean, I think it's, I mean, look, Open Secrets exists and other, there's a couple of others out there that are similar. There was Sunlight Foundation, the way they did things and follow the money. And there's, you know, there's all these different groups out there that always pop up and they're like, oh, they all have this gotcha mentality about it or whatever. But literally they exist because they know that most people are too lazy to try to figure out like, oh, how do I find out who gives money to Ted Cruz's campaign or whatever? It's really simple to pull a report or to search for a donor in any of this stuff. You have to know what you're doing, but like, like you have to know where to go. Of course, you can't just like, oh yeah, whatever. But it's easy. That's why I know that like groups like Open Secrets, etc. I just feel like they just have like a nefarious intention because they are. They just always feel very gotcha, and I just think it's kind of shitty. Like, I think yeah, everyone, I feel like I'm getting mixed messages from you. You hate it, but you think it should exist. I think open secrets is shitty. I think being able to see public data that's just like, oh, it's here on a report, and it's like three to a, three to a, three donors to a page, and I have the ability to find that. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't care. I think the way that Open Secrets takes that and bastardizes that information and puts their little chart over like, oh, 80% of the people do this and 60% of the people do that. It's like, it's bullshit. And I think like the way that they operate sucks. I think it's because they literally just want everyone to be like, I'm so mad that Ted Cruz took all his money from oil and gas. I mean, obviously he hates climate change because of it or like whatever it is these people like pull out of their rear ends to think about and complain about. That's the problem that I have with it. Public information in this? No, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think it's great, actually. Mm. I mean, frankly, it helps fundraisers know who's given where. Mm. Helps me do my job. 
But I think being a dick about it, like these people are, I think that's a problem. And I think that's a problem that we have throughout politics. And it's why people have gone to the far ends of the spectrum on both sides is because everyone's just so vigilant in their dickheadedness towards anyone that's slightly different from them. I have a feeling like you can get rid of open secrets if you wanted to, but if if the data exists, someone's going to create another sure, version. Just of be, it. I mean, there's like I said, there's, there's no, several versions of it. I mean, it just no is what it is. It. You know, whatever, fine. And I mean, frankly, it's like my grandmother always said about certain people in our hometown: they you, there is no way you can make that person happy. They they wake up looking for something to complain about, and there are just a lot of people that are very piqued by political things that they wake up every day and they want to find something to complain about. Mm. And open secrets just feeds those people. So you have a bunch of different types of candidates that you have supported, like sure. judicial, we mentioned state legislative congressional. Mm-hmm. Um, are those fundraising uh, processes different or are they pretty much uniform? Do you have to kind of the treat them found- the same? The foundation is the same. There's so, foundationally things you do that are similar or the same. So what would be something that would be different then? What do you think? Uh, so, I mean, everybody has different, um, you know, kind of different groups that care so much about state campaigns or so much about federal or local or what have you. So that kind of shifts your thing. And then there's different limits everywhere too. You know, it's like, oh, I can only take $1,000 here or I can do this here. Or do this. You know, you just have to have a different Is little bit of state-based or... Every city has different, like if you're running for city council or mayor here in Austin, you have caps. And I think those caps are something stupid, like $350 a donor or something here. I know in San Antonio, it's 500 and and 1,000 if you're running for mayor. Um, And then, of course, there's federal limits. And then, of course, in running for state rep or statewide office here or whatever, there is no um, outside of U.S. Congress or U.S. Senate. um, There is no limit to money. But so you just have to kind of change approaches because... There, you know, if there's limits or not limits, sure. I but guess, I mean, the foundation's the same. I guess I should know this. I just don't. Are you allowed to invest in your own campaign? Sure. And you any, can do any, it a, a couple different ways. You any can, any you, amount or are you limited mm, as well? You have to, you can loan yourself money, I think, of any amount that you want to do. Um, and then if you're a Texas, you're running for state rep or whatever, if you just want to give yourself the money, that's fine. Hmm. Most people always put it as a loan, though, in case there's an opportunity to pay themselves back. Got it. And you can count it as a loss if you do that that way as well. Bad debt or whatever. I don't know how people do it on their taxes. I don't think so. But I don't, oh, really? I don't, no. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I, so. I, I don't know. It depends on, I mean, I guess if they have themselves as an LLC, sure, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't ask those questions. So where does the money go when you raise it? Like what are the, if you had to say what the breakdown typically looks like, what is well, I mean, there's overhead cost? costs, you know, pay me, pay the consultants, pay the fields, depending on the size of the campaign, pay the field staff, et cetera. You have like silly stuff, like you have to have your website done and you have to have bumper stickers and push cards and like all the kind of accoutrement like that that go along yard, yard signs. Everybody in politics bitches about yard signs. We'll never get rid of them. It is what it is. <laughs> The people love them. Give them to the people. <laughs> um, so you have like that kind of stuff. But I mean, primarily depending on what the overall strategy is um, for how you're going to get out the vote and remind people who you are and to vote for you and all that stuff. I mean, you're going to put a ton of money on television. You're going to put less money, but still a lot um, on radio if you decide to do radio. And then you're going to spend a lot of money as silly as 
disbelieving as this is about to sound, um, mail, direct mail, direct mail, still moves people to the voter box. Mm. You get the shiny, oddly shaped, sized card the beautiful candidates family in the mail and tells you all the wonderful things they're going to do and all the police endorse them or what have you it makes you go oh yeah shit election day's coming up i need to go vote i'm gonna vote for this guy it really does help Mm. we don't get a lot of mail these days so it stands out too and then of course there's always money (laughs) yeah there is a lot of money now and it becomes um, a higher percentage of the overall budget every year of you know your digital spend your Email campaigns, your banner ads, your, you know, there's just so many different digital ads you can do now. You and canvassing this. is mostly uh, people donating their time, right? So you don't have to pay I, for that. I, mm-hmm. People do pay for doors. There oh, are really? services that exist out there. I don't believe in those services because I think you get a bunch of kids that you pay like X amount of money and they just throw the lit on the yard. And I don't think that's effective. I think, I think it has to be volunteer-based for it to be effective. And I think some people just like to feel like they're contributing their, you know, time, talent, shoe leather, want to be helpful. Hmm. Interesting. So you've been in over 100 different campaigns now on some level. Um, yeah, I mean, all the different people. I've, I mean, it's over 135 at this point because I've worked on so many. Well, it's campaigns, political organizations, groups, you know. What does a a lot? What does a good candidate look like? You know, (laughs) I just look at the end of the day. The last thing you ever want in a candidate is have that like October surprise where it's like, oh, cool, you have a second family that you thought we wouldn't find out about, or that the opposition research wouldn't find out about. Like, great. Um, (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. But what makes a good candidate? Like, what are you? Someone who's honest. Someone who. Someone who actually knows why they want to try to be an elected official and not just because they want the honorable in front of their name for the rest of their lives. Like somebody who really wants to like serve and come in and spend a couple years in the state legislature or Congress, see if they can get some stuff done, make life better for the constituents back home and call it a day. Because they're more believable. Is that why? No, because I don't want to work with people who don't have a fucking plan. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but like anyone who speaks in like platitudes or sound bites, I'm like, <sighs> jump off. But if you get a little bit boring and you're just like, you know, there's this really big problem with this one section of the property tax and it's affecting everyone in my home county and blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, sure, you're not going to put that on a push card. But the fact of the matter is like the dude knows. He's like, you know, somebody needs to point this out. And we need to try to fix it. Like you want to work with people who are like, I see problems, and when I see problems, I see solutions. You don't want to work with people. They're all just like, I just, you know, I just want to fight climate change, or, oh, I just want to really like the sanctity of the family. It's like, okay, that's not necessarily a problem, and it's definitely not a solution. Hmm. So why? So those are the people you have to go, oh, cool, you want the honorable in front of your name. Got it. And the reason why they are unelectable is just because they don't speak. Oh, I'm not saying they're unelectable. I'm saying I don't want to work for them. Okay. And so Mike, back to my question, what makes a good candidate? Not necessarily one. Oh, you asked, you didn't ask what makes an electable candidate. You asked who makes a good candidate. I see. Okay. There's a lot of differences. All right. Let's, let's start over. What makes someone electable? Uh, Getting 50 plus one of the voters to vote for you is what makes you electable. Mm -hmm. 
And you, you can do that. It depends on where you live. It depends on what the race is. There's, there is no silver bullet for any of the stuff that we're talking about today because werewolves aren't real. <laughs> but is there a certain demographic? Or is there a certain? Nope. nope. You gotta really be, not. You got to be this tall to ride the ride kind of nope. thing. Like there's really just, not. There's just nothing. It, it the appetites of voters change every election, and sometimes it's like cool, we want the the spunky 32-year-old chick. or And then the next time, it was like, cool, we elected the 68-year-old white man. Or, you know, you just, sure. Maybe there's some demographics that are just like, yeah, no, you probably don't have a shot. But, I mean, for the most part, it really just comes down to, like, people are going to look at it and say, yeah, this person has an R beside their name, and I'm an R. I'm going to vote for this person. Mm. And then when you come to the very, very, very tiny middle of people, it depends on what the topic du jour is. It seems like there are certain things that tend to help. Like they've got a family, for instance. They're family people. Uh, they're religious, for instance. doesn't matter which side you're on. Um, they... It shows you have roots where you live. That's why. That's why? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are there other things like that? Shows where you're, you're just, actually a member of the community because you're taking your kids to school or you're going to the church and you know people in the community. But it goes back to one thing, roots. So having some, okay, so that would say that somebody who's an outsider moving into town may be not such a good candidate. You know? A lot of times, no, just simply because they don't have a network where they live. You know what I mean? Like, people don't know them. It can be very difficult. You know, you can quickly get to know a bunch of people and they can get to know you. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible. Yeah. So, all right, back to your, this person has two families, rocky career sort of, how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, you're, you know, a couple it months. It depends on the, what it is. No, it depends on what it a is. A couple months in the campaign and you, this bombshell drops. What do you, what do you do? It depends on how they choose to try to fix the problem and or explain the problem and you know to me though that's that's a total integrity thing and um most of the, I, do you have any war stories anything i don't have any i want to talk about <laughs> okay um but i will throw deuces at those okay. people i don't have time for that i'm not going to deal with someone that like i can never trust again just not going to do it and is it you can't trust them because you didn't know or because you asked them and they said, no, I don't yeah, have no, two you, families. You know, yeah, I said, no, it's just more of just like, is there anything that's going to bite you? You know what I mean? It's like if you're spending every other weekend with your family in Tucson. I mean, like someone's going to find that out. I mean, you know, it's like mm-hmm. and certain things that it's just like, oh, yeah. I mean, you take it case by case, but it really doesn't happen often. Oh, really? No. Because it seems like it's we were talking about this at the beginning of the conversation. It's we willingly put our information out there. It's so easy to find out anything we want to know about people. It's not a big deal. I feel like there's some controversy in in Senate or Congress. I mean, not daily, but very, very frequently. So I would be surprised if it wasn't a more systemic thing. Stupid shit. Power corrodes. Power is brain. I really do believe that power causes brain damage and why I think no 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 <laughs> hear me out I think, I think there's some studies to actually agree with you but you know you've got like the receptors with the serotonin and the dopamine and like all that stuff and if it's like when people like constantly post on Instagram it's the same phenomenon you get that 
oh, 300 people liked my photo and whatever. And they're getting those, those 300 micro doses of the dopamine or whatever. It's the same with power. And someone's like, oh my gosh, it's Congressman Johnson. And oh my God. And they get so excited. Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. And I think you fray those receptors. And that's what leads to this like crazy ego and crazy power trip. And no one's going to ever turn on me type of attitude or whatever, because they literally fried their brain. Because of power. Maybe and that. because of ego. Maybe that. Maybe it's something about everyone saying yes to you all the time. It's hard to kind of come back from that and figure out that you actually are fallible. Um, yeah, but once they get to that point, they've been beaten. So, I mean, people very rarely willingly go home from elected office. You got to drag them out, kicking them screaming. Yeah, stupid. <laughs> it's just like, why do you want to keep doing this shit? <laughs> So um, why have you seen good candidates, otherwise good candidates lose? Is there any other than these super rocky history type stuff? No, I mean, like sometimes just like it's just not meant to be, you know. I mean, you can do everything right. And for whatever reason, the middle of the electorate that year just wasn't, wasn't buying what you were selling. I mean, there's a million different reasons why good candidates lose. Most of the time when it comes down, they lose. Yes, there are some that it's just like, whoa, like they just really weren't buying what you're selling. But because, you know, the middle voters, those those five percent in the middle, it just, you know, that everyone's gun gunning for every cycle or whatever, um, that you don't know which way they're going to go. It's, their appetites change. You just never know who they actually are. And, you know, like as you're trying to figure all this stuff out, as you go through this dead sprint of a nine month period of this campaign, and it's just, it can be hard on that. But sometimes, most of the time, the reason people don't win, they don't work hard enough. Hmm. They don't work hard enough at the campaign. And and it's mostly the sprint at the very end where they're not putting in the effort or should they you, put it as in soon much as you, earlier? Yes, much earlier on. You got to name ID, people to know what you stand for, who you are, name ID, name ID, name ID. Then you have to remind them, you got to vote, you got two weeks to do it. So what advice would you give some sort of newbie just getting started, deciding they want to get into politics? Like what, what are sort of the task lists to be good enough to get to the point where you can actually go run? Change your mind. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Number one, don't do it. Now, um, okay, so uh, the question is work in politics or be a politician? I, I meant more of a politician, but actually okay, I'd love no, to hear an answer right. both, yeah. Um, be a politician. I mean, first and foremost, like, don't just wake up today and be like, mm, I'm going to run for office. And you've never done shit to help your local party. You've never done anything with your local United Way or anything. Like, you've basically been kind of a crappy civic member. Don't, don't run. Like, because it's just, why are you running? Why? You have so many options to help people in your backyard that don't mean that you've run for office. And again, you get that, the honorable in front of your name. But if you really do want to be engaged at that level and you want to run for office, I recommend before you do that, you get actively involved in your United Way chapter, your Red Cross chapter, all this stuff that's very countywide or citywide or area-wide where they raise a ton of money and try to help people locally from school children to homelessness to old people to mental health. Like they cover the gambit in those organizations. And there's a million others. Like there's so many different organizations depending on where you live that you should get yourself involved with. If you're a church-going person, show up to church. Don't, like, talk about how much you and God have it, like, together, but you never show up to church. Like, okay, that makes you look like an asshole. 
it makes you look like a liar. Um, you know, make sure you're a part of the PTA. Make sure you're a part of Junior League. You know, do the things that are trying to help in the community first and devote yourself to that. Not only will you actually see what it's really like to do things on behalf of the community in which you reside, but you'll also, I mean, you'll meet a bunch of people and people will get to know you and and, and all of that. But like, there's a ton of different ways outside of being an elected officer of the community to help your community, which is the whole reason you want to be elected if you're doing it for the right reason. Theoretically, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So start there is what I would recommend. So let's just pretend that Susie Q has decided this is what she wants to do and she has a pure intentions. And so she goes and she does all of this and she's like, all this is done is just stoked my fire brighter. I can't wait to, because I went through all this with these three organizations and if they change this in the legislature, I could make all this happen. Okay, great. You want to run for office there? You better figure out how to ask people for money and you better have some money of your own if you want to spend some of it. I mean, because you can't, you people are always super duper surprised when it comes down to it, that they have their, what I call their Christmas card list. I'm like, cause those are the people who, if you're sending them a Christmas card and they're sending you a Christmas card, 90% of those people should actually be your friend. I mean, like someone that's like, oh, they would come to your funeral. I mean, you know, it's like there should be something there. So I always tell people, start asking for money from your Christmas card list when you're having to like do it yourself. And you would be surprised though, like, People will get very upset because they're like, well, Don and Judy only gave me $250 after I asked them for $1,000. And they're always like hurt. And I always have to tell people like, just whatever they can give you, get them to give it to you because you can't, you don't actually know people's financial situation or appetite for wanting to be involved. They see open secrets pinging people and all people getting doxxed over things. Mm -hmm. But they have to be ready to go with an actual network of people who can give them money because the first parts of your campaign are going to be nothing but rubber chicken dinners at local grassroots organizations and the Chamber of Commerce and the United Way dinner and what have you and asking your friends for money. Because I'll tell you this, John Doe, typical major donor who can make or break your campaign, will always ask first, well, what's your local support like? He's not talking about the people who are going door to door for you. He wants to know how many of your friends have given you money or if you've looked at him like he's going to be Daddy Warbucks. I like that answer. So um, you should like all of my answers. Well, I, I, well, you know, some are better than others. <laughs> but I like that one specifically because I think one of the side effects of learning the local. I don't know, lay of the land, mm -hmm. whatever it is, PTA meetings or whatever, yeah. whatever even HOA meetings, just yeah. learning the the issues that are kind of around you, around yeah. the community, can well, it really help frame up how you talk about your but campaign? It can also, I mean, it's discovery, too. I mean, just because you have, I mean, oh, well, if, if you live in the gated community of, like, your 10,000-person hometown or whatever, you might not know what it's like to live in the trailer park down by the river. You obviously probably don't know what it's like. to Like, you need to try to encompass the experience of everyone that you are thinking you want to go and serve mm -hmm. and the best way to do that is actually get engaged in the community and not just with your local debutante paul <laughs> which you should get involved with that too um yeah i mean the homeless shelter and just learning what's going on around you I yeah mean, there's, i mean there's lots of opportunities the P i mean you know yeah i mean don't be creepy if you don't have kids in school don't join the pta that's creepy <laughs> but um but yeah i mean you should listen to other people mm -hmm. and really figure out what it is that's wrong. That's interesting. I like that. 
Um, so I don't know. Have you um, done any fundraising for any Democrats? Um, no. This is a Democrat. I, it's an incorrect. It's an incorrect integrity question for me. I know. I don't. Um, I don't know how the hell you would do for both. I mean, honestly, I'm just I, curious. No, I'm a Republican fundraiser. Yeah. I think. Um, I know I, I'm, some donors do both. Some donors stuff. hedge their bets on things or whatever. They're not as um, prevalent as you would think. But I don't know if anyone is a Democratic fundraiser and will dabble in Republican or vice versa. I don't, I don't know of that. So, do you have any insight at all into if there's any differences in how you'd fundraise in those? Um, asking people for money is asking people for money. Yeah, I was just curious if there was. Some, I'm sure there's different things. I'm sure you there's have unions, for instance. Sure, but I'm be. sure there's. I mean, you would treat them like you. We would treat corporate owners. It's not a big deal. Um, but I mean, there's different things that friends of mine that are fundraisers do differently from me, and I do differently from them. I mean, there's. I mean, at the end of the day, the overall thing is ask for money. And then outside of that, how you kind of get there is kind of how you get there. I would assume that <clears throat> unions have a little bit of a different scenario because it's not like a candidate's going to go up in front of Walmart and just talk to all their employees necessarily. But you might do that for a union. You might just walk in and say, the, the union chapter supports so-and-so. Um, sure. But, like police but, unions, for instance. Sure. I mean, yeah, you, um, Republicans go to police unions and talk to their people for their votes, not for their money. Same with, you know, the unions themselves, from my understanding, is, like, the unions have, like, general political accounts that they spend big bucks for super PACs and what have you out of. And, and they have a, you know, legitimate pack that they can write, you know, those $5,000 checks out of. Um, but, I mean, it's the unions want their members to give money to them, not to candidates. So, it's like, cool, yeah, come on down. Uh, well, don't ask for money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily like something that's, um, said don't do or whatever from my understanding, but like there's, uh, you wouldn't necessarily do a whole big hoorah because you got 20 people in a crowd to give you 25 bucks. No, you want those people to vote for you. Mm -hmm. It's worth more. So changing the topic a little bit, um, in 2020, you were involved in the uh, USC Election Cybersecurity Initiative. Yeah, it was. Uh -huh. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was super fun. Okay, so, um, you know, obviously from the 2016 presidential election cycle, there were a lot of questions around whether um, elections were hacked, whether it was Facebook was hacked or individual Facebook accounts were hacked or email servers or individual voting machines or whatever. And so... To help assuage anyone's fear going into the 2020 election cycle, um, Google was looking for a place to, you know, put an investment into actually doing a rudimentary, honestly, it was a little bit rudimentary, and they didn't drive, like, they were the money, but they didn't necessarily drive the way things were done. It was all very USC-driven out of the Annenberg School um, out in Southern California, and they were, you know, it was great what they came up with. Um, but actually trying to drive like basic cyber hygiene for people. Cause stop and think about it. I mean, like so many of the people who are involved in political campaigns are retired Esther who doesn't know about two factor authentication or what to do if her Twitter account gets hacked and she's over here like 
running the Twitter camp, the Twitter account for John Doe for state Senate or what have you, like what to do. And so we were able to, which the original plan prior to COVID hitting was we were going to travel to all 50 states and engage primarily with, and this is not every state, but primarily every state is this way. Um, the secretary of state is the one who actually oversees and administers the state's elections. A couple states is the Lieutenant governor. And then there's a couple places. It's just like, it's just weird. Um, so we worked with their offices so we could engage. It was very nonpartisan slash bipartisan, but we wanted to engage every person, every campaign, and their actual campaign staffers and volunteers, state parties, legal women voters, county clerks. I mean, we wanted to run the gamut because so, I mean, not only is it like all these campaigns need to know what was going to happen or like to mitigate anything that could happen from a cyber hygiene perspective, but also, I mean, Every state has a different budget. Every local budget's different, et cetera. You know, it's not necessarily there wasn't training to be had for the people who work in a county clerk's office. Like, if I'm a foreign bad actor and I'm just looking to cause some mayhem, I mean, you're going to look at every avenue possible that you can try to hack into to, like, ruin things. I mean, we did have some scary scenarios we would talk about that had to do with, like, the power grid going down and like, anyway, it was all crazy, but I mean, hypothetical, of course, Mm -hmm. but obviously COVID hit 2020. (laughs) And so, but you know, it worked out just fine. We were able to pivot and we did, we ended up doing a training in all 50 States and a couple of States we did. We ended up doing 54 total trainings in, um, from the end of January to the end of October. And we were able to do that because we would do like two a week via Zoom. And we were very specific. We still did it with like, Missouri, is this is your date, and this is who we're recruiting. I mean, if other people who'd been in other states wanted to participate, we, of course, would like give them the login and like whatever, and they could participate along. But we trained people on um, just general like cybersecurity. Um, and then we also did. In, in what way? How was that useful for them in that context? Because there's election websites, there's email addresses, there's, you know, anything that can be hackable that has to do with their individual campaigns that they were working on or with they are, you know, Pulaski County election administrators, you know. Hacking them directly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so just thinking through different ways that they can actually like, you know, um, be a part of that. And then, you know, so much of what was said from the 2016 cycle was that there was a bunch of misinformation and disinformation out there. Some, I think... I'm going to get this right. Misinformation is a mistake of spreading information that isn't true. Disinformation is actively spreading untrue information. But so there was part of the training that was like how to recognize it, what to do about it, et cetera. And then we also had, um, and this is where like the power grid goes down, blah, 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 type of scenarios. We had a little bit of the training was with crisis communications. Um, Because if you're, you know, local yokel, small county nowhere Oklahoma highly doubt your county has paid for you to go through crisis communications training but that could be because you're an hour away from some top secret military base that the Russians know about and you end up hacking like the school gets hacked because it's a way for the you know the kids of the people who work at this super secret military thing like it's a way to hack into their stuff you know I mean like there's all this that you know kind of things um but it ended up being a really good program and we trained over 4,000 people. Wow. Um, and it was very specific. It wasn't just like, oh, call to anybody. I mean, it was very specific of people who are actual grassroots volunteers, actual campaigns, actually administering elections. Like, it was very specific. So we had an excellent turnout. We had excellent support from Google and from USC. And, and um, you know, we ended up being um, 
recognized for the work that we were able to do in the middle of a crazy pandemic. It was still so crazy that we did. And you got to understand, like, we were doing the same presentation for everybody. So twice a week for months. And these weren't like 20-minute presentations. These were like three hours. Mm. All of us were so exhausted by the end of it. I was just like, if I hear any of this stuff anymore, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I'm going to rip my face off. Like, it just got so crazy. But for everybody who was in our audience, first time they ever heard it. They were like a, like so excited and like had some great questions and really got a lot out of it. But we were um, fortunate we won a read award for, you what know. What is that? I don't know. Um, so the read award is from campaigns and elections magazine. Um, it's like one of the kind of forefront old school, you know, political, I don't want to call it associate, but it's like where people go to gather and it's, you know, both it's agnostic and political, like it's both sides of the aisle, whatever. And so they do big awards every year. There's those and the polys are like the big awards for, you know, your TV commercial or your mail piece or whatever, but they always do things around grassroots engagement, civic engagement, education, that kind of thing. And so we ended up getting best civic education piece wow. for 2020, which we were pretty proud of. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. It was cool. So did you get any feedback from the individuals later? Like, Oh, I, I stopped we this did. thing. Good. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. I mean, they, you know, oh, we set the whole office up on two-factor authentication and everybody feels so much better now. And, <laughs> you know, and, and frankly, the program in a in a different form still lives on, you know. And there was, um, my understanding is, because we're no longer a part of the program, we just did the 2020. Um, but uh, there has been, because we, we were able to gin up quite a bit of press about what we were doing, which was great. I mean, you would think that Annenberg School, which is a school of communication, would be able to, you know, <laughs> gin up some press for themselves, That's of course. <laughs> um, but there have been people and organizations in Europe and Asia um, they have wanted um, somebody from the school to come and do the presentation and train them. And so there's been, you know, international engagement on it as well, which is wow. cool. That's yeah. great. I mean, it's, it's, what is it? They say, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the tactic that we took on this was people don't know what to do if their Facebook account gets hacked. I mean, you know, and it's like something serious and it's an elective. It, like, you know, I mean, who do you call? Not Ghostbusters. How did you get involved in this in the first place? Oh, you know, people who know you people. Got a, got yeah, somebody, yeah, no, 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 it wasn't. Um, <laughs> From some Russian address. It was um, the partner that I um, worked on the project with. He was approached by somebody he had done a project for in the past. And okay. so it just kind of, you know, gotcha. as we do everything, it's like, oh, yeah, you did this for me once. We'll call you again. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, Chris tells me that you're involved in helping him with the Texas Media Coalition. I am. Um, and getting a new piece of legislation passed. Um, I've asked this question before of some other guests, but I'd love to hear your answer. Um, how do you get a bill passed in Texas? Bribery and <laughs> diet, Dr. Pepper. No, um, <laughs> I wish it were that easy. Uh, no, I mean, you know, honestly. Have you tried that? No. I'm it too, might work. I'm too cheap for bribery. Come on. Um, no, I mean, look. The good news about legislation that you want to die a slow and painful death. There are so many bills that are filed and we only have 140 days every other year for anything to even happen in the state legislature. Any type of changes to the constitution, to the code, et cetera, it happened. And so when you think about it, between both chambers, the upwards of between five and 6,000 bills that are filed a semester, I guess we could call it, a session, um, 
percentage-wise, very few actually get passed out of both chamber and side nipple law. How many, out of curiosity? 10%, 20%? 1%, maybe. Wow, really? I don't know. Low. Less than 10%. Less okay. than 10% for wow. sure. So, I don't know. I think the number, I think, don't quote me on this. Sure. I think the number is around 300. I don't know. And then there's like the bills. and they, Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go down a whole civics lesson. With you, but <laughs> anyway. But, you know, some of it just has to do with timing. Like, is what you're trying to get done something that you have the right people who want to champion this and use their political capital to get this through the right committee and on the floor to be voted for at the right time and have the right person across in the other chamber to be, you know, a companion bill to this. And they're going to do the same thing on their end with the right committees. I mean, some of it is a little bit kismet. Some of it is just timing of like, oh, cool. We know that we've got to do these three things, this session or whatever, and it aligns with those three things. Great. And there's some things that they're always going to be dead on arrival. I mean, If you want to put through some wild-ass climate change, ban all gas cars immediately in the state of Texas type of bill, no one's even going to take that seriously. Um, So you have to be really thoughtful and you have to be really serious about what it is you're trying to do. And another thing, your legislation can't be such a crazy change that's hard to enact. That dog's not going to hunt, you know, like you can't get that done. But, I mean, you primarily you have to do a lot of educating, a lot of shoe leather in the building, and you have to have the right champions. Hmm. And I've I've been told in Texas in particular, the lieutenant governor has a lot of authority to kind of say, I'm not going to go forward with this. Why, why specifically him and not just the, the Texas the Constitution? And I will tell you, it's because Sam Houston was very cognizant of not wanting to be treated or have the ability to be treated like a king. Um, he was worried about future governors. And so he made it to where the Constitution was going to be very, this is my understanding, because I obviously grew up with Arkansas history, not Texas history. Um, but he really just wanted to make sure that there was always a um, kind of stopgap and the the governor of Texas couldn't just be some dictator. Mm, interesting. I think it's smart. I mean, you know, it's interesting. You know, everybody kind of has their own role over there. I mean, the governor has a role, lieutenant governor has a role, the speaker has a role. They're all equally important in different yeah, ways. It, yeah, I mean, until very recently, I didn't know that that was the case. And it well, kinda, in most states, the power is with the governor. So yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it kind of feels more like a vice president, where it's it's almost ceremonial. Uh, in a lot of states, lieutenant governor is a part time job <laughs> and is paid accordingly. <laughs> Interesting. Bless their hearts. That's their hearts. Um, Always the bridesmaids. <laughs> so what do you give Chris's uh, chances of getting this done? And, oh. and why? What, what? Mm, that's tough. I don't know if I want to go on record saying this. Um, I don't know who's watching this or whatever. Look, oh, come on, Patia. You got to yeah. help me out <laughs> yeah, here. Look, like this is the, for the state of Texas. Yeah, 100%. Look, at the, like at the end, yeah, like at the, no, I've never given anything 100%. But um, at the end of the day, look, the incentive program that has been put together to help job creation, bring business to Texas, keep business that's currently in Texas in Texas. I mean, it's a home run of what he want, what he's put together. I mean, it's totally a home run. It makes perfect sense. It's not appropriated money. It's not money coming out of anybody's pocket. It makes sense. A version of it already exists for something very nation specific. This just expands on that. Um, it is sad to me that we're basically last. Like, we're the size we are, not only land-wise, but also 
we have all seven ecosystems in this state. Nobody else can say that. And we have 30 million people that live here. We have all kinds of really awesome good things. And we have that whole like everything's bigger and better in Texas. Well, no, actually it's not because we're behind every state almost on our incentive program for bringing film and television to be, you know, produced in our state. It's kind of like, oh shit, did we forget something? I mean, it's it's silly almost. I think the thoughtfulness of the bill, the partners that we currently have and that we will continue to grow upon and build and expand our partnerships that we have in the industry and in the business community, because this is a job creator. Um, this is a revenue generator for the state as well as there's obviously an incentive for them to come here. But once they get here, they are spending money and it is a good thing. Um, we have really the right partners and we're on track to gain even more of those right partners. And mm-hmm. so I feel like everything we've done so far, we haven't misstepped. Um, I think our chances are excellent, honestly. I think there's a lot of appetite for this and I think there's there's a lot of things that have lapsed um, in the state of Texas that there needs to be some sort of replacement for. Well, you hear if, that, Chris? If we are going to be the the Texas miracle, continue to be the Texas miracle and be the number one state for business in the country, we gotta we gotta you have to work to keep those titles. Chris, it sounds like one hundred percent to me. Wow, thank you very much, patient. <laughs> we spent a lot of time doing this, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, Patia, this has been great. Um, awesome. So how do people get in touch with you or follow you? I don't you want or... people to get in touch with me. <laughs> what if they have a campaign? and they Forget want... that you ever saw this episode, please. I mean, the three people that are going to watch this, and uh-huh. it'll only be three because I'm not telling my mother I did this. Um, uh, how do people? Um, I mean, my name's kind of weird. You can just, like, search me. You can find me, like, on LinkedIn. Okay. It's fine. LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm not giving anyone my email or my phone number. Oh, that's... I and I don't have a website for a reason. Yeah? What's the reason? Out of curiosity. Privacy. Okay. You don't have to put your address on there. You know? No, it's just more <laughs> of like, I don't know. My grandmother always said we should, a lady should maintain an air of mystery. So here we are, I as I do a podcast and talk about everything. I know. You know, Patia, Robert is one of the Robert is one of the best cybersecurity experts in the globe. You know that, right? No. <laughs> she just found out. <laughs> Great. It's great. It's it's all great. <laughs> this has been great. Thank, Thank you so you very much. much. Yeah, I really appreciate it.